You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. All right, so we are moving back into uh, our sermon time now, and this is the last week of our Radical Prayers series. So uh, over the last three weeks, now this is being week four, we had that first week of what is a radical prayer, then we had the prayer of Lord, search me, then we had the Lord, uh, the prayer of Lord, break me last week, and today we're looking at the prayer of Lord, send me. And so this is a way for us in our walk with Jesus to see what are those radical prayers that we can pray to draw us closer to God and to have us on mission for his glory, to make an impact for the kingdom. I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I was on a youth trip, a youth retreat. Uh, Anybody remember Ridgecrest? Some people, yeah, there we go. So I was at Ridgecrest with my youth group, and we're sitting there in the worship time, and God had already started to do something in me in that period of time and what was going on. And while we're there, we're at the worship gathering, and I'm one of the oldest ones in the youth group. I'm getting close to being able to graduate, to go on to college and do all those things. And I'm there in this worship gathering, And I'm just lost in the worship. Like It's like there's nobody else in the room. I'm just there crying out to God, worshiping him. And in the midst of doing those things, I'm very convicted of just sin in my life. Just sins that that maybe disobedience, things that I'm not doing to glorify God. And I'm there listening, and there's this preacher. At the time, he just went by T-Bone. His name is Tony Morita. He's a a wonderful uh, pastor in North Carolina. He's a uh, phenomenal professor, uh, taking him for courses at Southeastern Seminary. I've I've read his books. Like, he's fantastic. And he's preaching the word, and I am just so convicted. And in that moment of conviction, I, I repent, but then also the Lord does something very, very just transformative with me. I was already a believer. The Lord called me. He he told me that day, like, this is the moment, Brian. I need someone to surrender their life to go into ministry. And at that moment, that was the, the moment for me of God saying, I'm calling you. And it changed my life forever from that day forward. It didn't happen immediate. I wasn't pastoring the next week, thank God, because that church would have not done well. But over time, the Lord used people in my life to train me, to equip me, to, set, to, to follow through with the setting apart that God had called me to for pastoral ministry. And all it took was that moment of after worshiping the Lord, sensing that conviction, repenting of it, to where I would say, Lord, I know that this is what you've called me to, so send me. I want to ask you, have you ever been just in a moment like that where you have just been worshiping the Lord, you're so focused on him, you're in awe of him, but you're overwhelmed by the weight and the reality of your sin? You're overwhelmed by it to the point where you're like, Lord, I am truly sorry. I'm repenting to you. Use me, Lord. I want to do whatever you're calling me to. And has he called you to do something? 
Has he called you to do something? I would say yes, for all of us as believers, we've been called to the work of ministry in the sense of being a follower of Jesus to fulfill the Great Commission. But then he also calls for other things, vocations, doing things for his glory, so on and so forth. Today, as you see there on the screen, the sermon title is Lord Send Me. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And in this passage, the Lord allows Isaiah to see this vision, this vision of heavenly worship in the presence of God and the worship experience. It brings Isaiah to realize how unworthy he is to be there. And it leads him to repentance to God. And we also see God atoning Isaiah's sin, which leads to Isaiah then answering the call to be sent for God's work. So today we're going to see the Lord redeems his people. And he redeems his people for the purpose of fulfilling the call on their lives for the glory of his name. If you're taking notes, I hope you are. The first point is this. The Lord is holy and worthy. The Lord is holy and worthy. And before we get to the send me part, we have to understand the context of what's happening here. We have to understand this picture of why we are to be sent. Why we are to say, Lord, here am I, send me. See, this vision that's happening here, some commentators believe that this isn't the right place for this vision to take place, this commissioning of Isaiah. Instead, they think it should be at the beginning, but it's, it's not the case. This is a moment where Isaiah has already been doing all of this work that God's called him to that we read about there in the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah. And we now get to this point in six where this vision happens, and it's this moment, this, this realization for Isaiah so that he can then repent and be used by God to move forward, continuing in the work, to be commissioned. So there in verse one, it tells us, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. See here in this passage, Isaiah indicates that King Uzziah, he's died. The Lord then gives him this vision and he, he, he understands the point that, God, you're, you're telling me to do something here. You're giving me direction. Who was King Uzziah? He was a king that reigned for about 52 years. And for the most part, from what we know, he was a godly king. He did his best to do things the right way. But now that he's died, there's anxieties, there's worries, there's fears. What's going to happen next? Think about that. Think about the anxieties that people maybe were facing there was uncertainty of who would reign next. Would they be a good king? Would they, would they have the best in mind for the people? Would they, in fact, honor God? See, we see the Lord gives Isaiah this vision of the Lord in heaven. And Isaiah pens this under the direction of the Holy Spirit and directs us directly to the throne room, much like that of John in the book of Revelation. And Isaiah indicates that he sees the Lord there sitting upon the throne. Man. I don't know about y'all, but I can't wait to see that. Did you notice, though, how it was described? 
He describes that the Lord is there on the throne and he is high and lifted up. He gives this picture of the sovereign rule and reigning of God over all creation. Isaiah continues describing what he sees in a vision, the train of the robe, the clothing of the Lord. It fills the temple. It gives this picture to us of this overwhelming majesty of God. Continue with verse 2. Above him stood a seraphim. Each had six wings. With the two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. So we see this picture here. It describes the seraphim, the angel. These two angels, they're, they're flying around the throne. They've got these six wings. They've got two that are covering them to help them fly. Two that are covering their face. Two that are covering their feet. And you might say that you say, well, why on earth is this seraphim need to cover his eyes and cover his feet? Why is that the case? Simply put, the radiance and the brightness of God's majesty was too much even for them to see. If they covered the eyes and the feet weren't covered, it would come through. It had to be completely covered because they were there in the presence of God Almighty. What does this tell us? The God that we are called to serve, He is worthy. He is majestic. He is worthy of praise and adoration. Much like when we were singing that song of Sierra Lettuce, she said, this picture, the angels are crying out and we get to join them in singing to God. I don't know about you guys, but when we gather here in this place, we don't come in here just to check a box. Like anything that is burdening us from our week, anything that we know that is coming, the potential health diagnosis, whatever it may be, we need to, as hard as it may be, leave those things at the door. Leave them at the foot of the cross. And as we gather together, cry out together in worship because this is a moment where we gather with our family to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus together. It is such a sweet, sweet moment in time and it is a picture a mere picture of what we will experience for eternity. Verse 3 tells us what that will look like. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Isaiah shows this proclamation of these seraphim together in the presence of God. They call to one another saying, holy, holy, holy. As I was studying through this, I was just reminded back in the summer we went through the Psalms. The psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 34, verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. As the psalmist pens that, he's telling the people, magnify, worship God with me, because it is a picture of what we will do when we're in glory. Because He's worthy. He's worthy of it all. It's a picture of heavenly worthy worship. Excuse me. I, I, just put it bluntly, if, if we gather in here and we don't 
cry out to God and we don't worship Him and sing loudly and, and praise His name, it may be a little uncomfortable for you when we get to heaven. Because it's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be magnifying the name of the Lord together. Singing the excellencies of His name repeatedly over and over and over. And you know what? We'll never get tired of it. We'll be so grateful and thankful because we're in His presence. These seraphim, they declare that the whole earth is filled with God's glory. Almighty God has revealed Himself to His creation. We see countless examples of it in the Scriptures. We have general revelation to us by seeing the handiwork of God all around us. You step out in nature, what do you see? You see God revealed to you. The beauty of His creation. It is there before us. All of that general revelation, all that handiwork of God around, and yet the world as a whole does not know and proclaim His worthiness because of our sin. Mankind has exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped the created over the creator, as Romans 1.25 states. What does this mean? God's glory is revealed, yet man chooses not to worship. They choose the idols of their hearts over worshiping Him. Let me ask this question. What has your response, what has my response been to the holiness of God. What has our response been? Are we indifferent toward Him? Or have we been radically changed by what He's done and by who He is that we are left in awe of Him? I'll take it a step further. What does our worship look like even outside of here in our daily lives? Do we worship the Lord throughout our day not just singing praises to Him, reading Scripture to Him, but praying, communicating with Him throughout our day, proclaiming His name to a lost and dying world, taking ownership for lostness around us. What has our response been? You see, because there must be a means by which for a man, men, human people, to be purified, redeemed, so that this proclamation can be seen and can be transformative. And we see there in the heavenly scene just how the Lord does this with Isaiah, which leads to point number two. Man must be redeemed of sin. Man must be redeemed of sin. Verse four, the foundations and the thresholds of the shook of the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. <clears throat> Excuse me. We begin to see the effect of God's holiness on display in this heavenly picture. The foundations and the thresholds of the heavenly room, they shake at the mere sound of his voice, and it's filled with smoke. If you recall from the Old Testament, this was common. It was really an ordinarily a sign that God used when he was speaking with his people. In the book of Exodus, as Moses would engage with the Lord, smoke would be diffused, diffused excuse me, through the point, 
through it to the point to where people would be able to see Moses, not being able to see him there, or in the tabernacle, smoke had filled the place. The smoke was a way of demonstrating all of the power and nature of God. So as he says this, it's a picture of his justice. It's a picture of him being sovereign ruler over the world. In verse 5, Isaiah, seeing this picture, look what he says. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a pivotal verse here in this passage that we need to pay attention to. You see, he's there before the Lord. He's seen this before him in this vision. And he is realizing who he is compared to who he's standing before. That first word there, he says, woe. He realizes that he is just like those whom he's prophesied to prior to chapter 6. Upon looking and being in the presence of the Lord Almighty, he senses the weight of his sin and his shame. You may hear that and you may ask the question, but wait, pastor, he was God's prophet. And my reply to you would be, yes, yes, he was God's prophet. But all men have fallen short of God's glory, as the scriptures tell us. All people are in this place of being enemies of God, and God needs to redeem those who are his enemies. And he does that through Jesus, we know in the scriptures. All are unworthy to be in the presence of God, to be able to worship him. Yes, Isaiah has done great things, and he attempts to live a life that's pleasing to God. But he knows that on his very best day, his life is just like what he describes here before the Lord in the vision. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Why does he say this? Why does he realize this? Because as he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, in the presence of God, looking at all his glory, Isaiah realizes that he is unworthy. He realizes there's judgment coming from the righteous judge. He needs to be purified. He needs to be redeemed. To which I ask the question, what about you and I? See, we might not have this vision given to us right now before the Lord, but we can read the scriptures, the living and active scriptures of God. We must also understand the theological concept that God is omnipresent. He sees all. He rules over all. So my question is, what is your response before him today? What is our response before this holy, worthy God do you see yourself as unworthy and in need of purification? There in verse 6, Isaiah says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
Now, we can recall from our study of the book of Leviticus a couple years ago how God has commanded against strange fire. You remember the, the priests that were there doing it? They did it with strange fire, and they were consumed. They were, they were instantly killed because they did not follow through with what God says. But here, this imagery of the burning coal coming from the altar, it represents a picture of the purity needed to cleanse or redeem Isaiah. And don't miss this. It could only come from God alone. None of Isaiah's works that he had done, nothing of his own merit, nothing that he could boast about. There was nothing that Isaiah could do. It had to come from God alone. Verse seven tells us, taking that burning coal, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin, don't miss it, atoned for. The seraphim touches Isaiah's mouth. He says those words, and my response is, wow. Make no mistake, this coal wasn't some magical item that could just, boop, take it all away. Nothing like that. It's there to serve as an image to this atoning work that, as I said, only God can do. What happened in this account with Isaiah is the same that happens to every man, woman, and child. All are in need of that atoning work. All need the sin of man to be atoned for. And it can only be atoned for through Jesus, the God-man, the holy son of God, who comes, lives, dies a perfect life after being sinless dies, takes the wrath of God in the place of all mankind so that all sins, past, present, and future, can be atoned for to all who repent and believe. Amen. There must be a recognition of sinfulness before God, repentance of that sin, and confession of Jesus as Lord. It's at that moment that the burning coal moment happens when the Holy Spirit comes and he indwells believers. Can you remember that day of your salvation? Can you remember the day that you walked from death to life? You might not remember the date you not, might not remember the time, but you remembered there was a time when I was lost and then I was found. I was a sheep without a shepherd, now I have a shepherd. The Holy Spirit came and indwelled you, and you knew there in that moment I had been redeemed. I had been purified of my unrighteousness. When that happens, believers are radically changed and is radically changed people. They can pray a radical prayer. They can pray a radical prayer like, Lord, send me. Which leads me to the final point. Surrender to the call. Surrender to the call. I hope so far you've seen the, the context of what's led us to this point. Here in verse 8, 
Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. We see here this description of the triune God speaking among himself. First he says, I. Then he says, us. There at that same time. See, there is a need. The Lord needs to send a messenger, one who will go forth and proclaim the excellencies of his name for a dying lost world. Isaiah doesn't waste any time. He doesn't say, well, maybe you can call in somebody else. Maybe there's something going on. No, no, no. Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Here's why this statement points to a direct application of a praying, a radical prayer. To tell the Lord, here I am, send me. Each believer realizes their place before God. We are not worthy to serve him, yet we get to. Because of what he's done. We are sinful and deserve eternal death, yet he provides the means of redemption so that we can serve him. Can you see the images of the past three weeks of what we've been studying play out here before our eyes? Just as Isaiah realizes his sinfulness, we ask God to search our hearts and our thoughts. We ask the Lord to make clear the sin that is in us so that we can confess it to God and move forward in the way everlasting. Search my heart, O God. We cannot truly mean what we say that we'll be sent wherever he wants us to go if we're not broken for the point of doing what he's called us to do, realizing that self-denial and dying to ourselves, taking up our cross, is a requirement to follow Jesus. Lord, break me. Then we can pray this prayer. Lord, send me and truly mean it. This radical prayer is the ultimate sign of surrender and obedience at the same time. It's surrender because as if we're going to God, and Adam Spurlock has been famous for saying this, so I'm going to quote my buddy Adam. It's as if we're writing a blank check to God. We've already signed it. We've left the line blank. There's nothing else that's on there. It's just our signature on the check, and it says, Lord, here is a blank check. Tell me what to do. That is not in reference to tithing. That is in reference to your life. Lord, here is a blank check of my life. Whatever you want, whatever you desire, here it is. And I mean this, Lord. If it doesn't look the way I want it to look, fine. If it makes me feel uncomfortable, fine. I would argue that that uncomfortable feeling helps you to lean more and more on him and trust him through the process. Whatever it is, we say, Lord, here's my life. It's yours. There's nothing that I can gain in this life. I want to be used by you. So what can we say, Lord, here I am, Send me too. 
Could it be that we need to surrender to be sent down the hallway? Can it be that we need to say, Lord, send me next door? Could it be that we say, Lord, send me across the street? Lord, send me to the checkout line. Could it be that you say, Lord, I surrender. Send me to the mission field. Could it be that the Lord is telling you to surrender to the call of vocational ministry? Maybe there's somebody within the sound of my voice in this room or listening online that's a part of this faith family that says, you know what? I feel like the Lord is calling me to vocational ministry. That would excite Walter and I more than anything because we can have pastoral residencies to train up and equip men to be sent as pastors. We believe very firmly that one day God is going to build his church and we will have church planters that will be going out and be sent to plant churches, to go and revitalize churches, to replant churches. Because more and more people are lost daily in this city, in the surrounding areas. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus. Will you surrender and say, Lord, here I am. Send me to use the extra time you have to pour into the ministry that God has handed us of Charleston Bilingual Academy. You have a couple of hours in your day to say, you know what, I want to go and I want to help serve these teachers. I want to help serve this faculty. I want to help serve these students. I want to get to know these parents. I want to be at the drop-off line for 30 minutes to engage these kids and their parents. I want to be here on Mondays, Brian, when you and Walter are here, and as you guys are going and you're giving coffee to the teachers just to build relationships with them, I want to be there so I can see that and I can meet them. Will you take advantage of what God has called you to for the good of his name, for the good of this city? And will you say, Lord, here I am, send me? Because I referenced it earlier, every single one of us have the call of the Great Commission on our lives to go and make disciples. And we haven't been doing it. So will you radically pray a prayer that says, Lord, here I am. I don't feel like I'm equipped enough to do it. I don't feel like I've got all the answers. I don't even know what it is that you would want me to do. But I do know what you've done for me. And I know that I'm unworthy of it. And I know that there are people that surround this place that are in my daily lives that walk through the halls of this building that do not have a relationship with you, that do not know what you have done for them. Let me be the one to tell them, Lord, here I am. Send me.
What would it be like, church, if we prayed that prayer, we meant it, the Lord said, okay, here, and we went. Firmly believe that lives would be changed and God would be glorified. Will you pray that prayer? Pray with me, please. Father God, Lord, you are so worthy of our praise. We don't deserve, Lord, what you have done for us. But Lord, we are humbled that we are your people because of what Jesus has done. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And the Holy Spirit, you guide us and you direct us. Father, I pray, Lord, that these last four weeks have not gone in one ear and out the other for us. I pray, Father, that it has truly been transformative for us. I know as even one of the shepherds of this congregation, Lord, it has been transformative for me. Father, I pray Lord, that we would earnestly say to you, Lord, search me. Lord, break me. And Lord, send me. However that may look, even if we don't have the details yet, let it first start with our hearts to be willing to say yes. Let us write the blank check and say, Lord, here I am. Send me. We love you, Father. We glorify you in the name of Jesus. Amen.